For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark McLemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up, how the state is banking water for when the Colorado River goes dry. Musician Mike Peters of The Alarm talks about his unique rock and roll journey. And meet the filmmaker behind Double Digits, a documentary about one man's love for creating epic films in his backyard. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. For more than two decades, Arizona has been storing water underground to prepare for when the state's main water source, the Colorado River, falls into shortage. The water bank was created to ensure that when residents turn on their faucet, water flows. But for all its merits, and more than $300 million building basins and storing water, critics say it's still not a comprehensive plan. Vanessa Barchfield explores the issue in the second installment of To the Last Drop, a collaboration between AZPM and the Arizona Daily Star. There are just more than two dozen spots where the Arizona Water Bank stores water in underground aquifers, including the Pima Mine Road recharge site, about 15 miles south of downtown Tucson, on the way to Nogales. So we're out, kind of seemingly in the middle of nowhere. Um, We chased some cattle out of the way to get here. That's Diet Person. She's a public information officer for the Central Arizona Project, or CAP. It runs this facility in partnership with Tucson Water. And um, we can hear the pumps going, which are releasing the water into the recharge basin. That water gushing into the recharge basin is from the Colorado River. It's traveled through canals and the pipeline to get here, the furthest south that CAP water goes. It'll seep through the ground and end up in the aquifer deep below where we're standing in about 10 days. Tucson Water uses this site like a checking account. It puts CAP water into the aquifer and then later pumps it out and sends it into our homes and gardens. But a portion of this water is also stored by the water bank as a sort of water savings account for the future. Have you been here before? The Arizona Daily Star's Tony Davis is here with me. Never. What does it look like to you? It looks like a lake, Arizona style, artificial. It looks to me more like a big swimming pool, really, because it's so rectangular. Right. It's the way we do water in this state, okay? We design it and build it. We don't have it, you know? Of all the sites like this that have been designed and built throughout central Arizona, this and another Tucson area spot are pretty unique and in a way privileged. They already have wells in place to pump water back up to the surface when it's needed. With four or five other of these CAP-owned facilities, they don't have wells anywhere near it. So if they want to recover that water directly, they're going to have to install and drill wells and spend money for pipelines and maybe reservoirs. And whether that's going to happen, well, that's one of the cruxes of this whole story. Now let's back up a little and explain a few things. First, for much of the 20th century, Arizona wasn't using all of its allocation of Colorado River water. When Arizona didn't use it, it flowed downstream to California, which lapped it up. The Arizona Water Bank was formed in 1996 to enable the state to take all of the water it was allowed to have each year and store it underground for a rainy day. Or, in Arizona's case, a really not rainy day. 
The second thing we need to talk about is shortage on Lake Mead. Right now, there's about a 50% chance that the lake will drop into a Tier 1 shortage by 2020. Cities won't lose any water then. Mostly, it'll be the farmers in central Arizona that lose out. And, actually, the water bank too. But cities won't be in the clear forever. Warren Tenney heads the Arizona Municipal Water Users Association. Eventually, there will be a shortage level that does impact municipalities. Let's just be clear who those municipal users are that he's talking about. It's Tucson and Phoenix and Oral Valley and, you know, Scottsdale, okay? Um, And whoever else up there has CAP allocations. It's cities. It's, you know, it's people in their day-to-day lives. The municipalities feel an urgency to know how this water is going to be recovered. One of the reasons for that sense of urgency is that shortage is looking like it could be coming sooner rather than later. For many years, the thinking was that the water bank would only need to provide water in the far distant future. Here's Director of Phoenix Water, Katherine Sorensen. Several years ago, there was this idea that shortage would not come in the time frame that it appears as though it will come. Clearly, that has turned out not to be a, a very good assumption. There is a possibility, while very low probability, that there could be a need for recovery in 2022, and that's what we have to plan on. Just to be clear, 2022 is the worst-case scenario. But, as Sorensen says... When it comes to provision of safe, clean water at the tap, we cannot be in a situation where a lack of planning has led us down a road where we're unable to provide those reliable water supplies at the tap. So we really look at worst-case scenarios, and we plan for those. Sorensen says because of that, central Arizona cities are making their own plans to secure their water futures. Some of them, including Tucson, are banking water on their own. Our plans that we have in place today do not necessarily rely on recovered water bank water because there is so much that is currently unknown about how this is going to take place. The city of Phoenix can't wait around for someone else to come up with these plans. In any case, the water bank isn't a silver bullet. When shortage comes, it'll only supplement about 20% of the water cities lose to cuts. It's just one tool in the toolbox. Still, it's an important one to get right. And CAP, the Arizona Department of Water Resources, and the Water Bank say they are moving in that direction. A new planning group called the Recovery Planning Advisory Group has been convened and is tasked with sorting through the big questions facing the bank. Those are how much water cities will get, how water will be recovered, and who will pay for it. In regards to how water will be recovered, there are a few different options. There is direct recovery, which means the water comes out of the same spot it was put into the ground. Here's CAP's Ken Seashoals. Direct recovery, um, it has its advantages in, in the sense that you're adding a physical supply, but it's one of the most costly ways to achieve recovery because it does require new infrastructure. Another option, as the Stars Davis explains, is indirect recovery, which means cities and other users pump water from their own aquifers using existing infrastructure in exchange for credits from the water bank. And, and that's a lot simpler and a lot quicker. The downside of it is you have these water bank recharge basins that were deliberately and they were designed to store water. Uh, And and so there the aquifer is full, but meanwhile we're pumping water out of another aquifer 
and potentially jeopardizing that and leaving this other water sitting there. Here's Metro Waters Water Resources Manager Wally Wilson. There has been a strong desire from providers in the Maricopa area, and they've made it clear many times that they want wet water recovery to meet their wet water needs. They don't want to do the paper water credit thing. Paper credits would be one form of indirect recovery. So what Wilson's saying here is that many cities want direct recovery. That's the water that the bank stored in the ground. Their feeling is, as we spent all this time and money designing these recharge basins, we put a lot of water into them. Let's use that. That's wet water that we can actually touch. It's tangible. You know, credits is on paper. Nobody wants paper water if you're going to have wet water. Members of the planning advisory group say they hope to wrap up the work by the end of the year. I am sure there will be some disagreement about how all of this will come together. That's Phoenix Waters' Katherine Sorensen again. But I think Arizonans are really good at the end of the day at coming together, uh, coming up with innovative solutions regarding water planning and figuring it out. And I'm sure that's what we'll do. And meanwhile, negotiations are also underway on a drought contingency plan, which is meant to shore up Lake Mead and mitigate the risk of a very deep shortage being declared. How do you think I should end my story? I think the thing that most people are going to want to know is, well, they've taken too long to do this. You know, we're in a state of mild disarray right now, but will the water be there when we need it? And I think the answer is going to be is that the water bank's future is tied to the future of the drought contingency plan. And its success is going to depend in part on whether they can get an agreement to keep Lake Mead propped up a little longer to give them more time to deal with all these issues that are very difficult and expensive and time-consuming. That's a problem that doesn't yet have a solution. You know, the other thing you could do is end it on a positive note. We're lucky. We have this. California doesn't have this. Nevada doesn't have this. You know, uh, we're a national model. So in the end, we should be grateful that the water's there at all. And with the water there, when it's really needed, chances are someone will figure out how to get it out. For Arizona Spotlight, I'm Vanessa Barchfield. That story was reported in partnership with the Arizona Daily Star. You can read Tony Davis's article on banking water in this Sunday's edition. As a teenager like me in Fort Worth, Texas in the 1980s, there wasn't a whole lot of access to the music of the punk and new wave explosion. An important exception was the rock and roll alternative from the Dallas station KZEW a Sunday night block of the best cutting-edge music hand-picked by host George Gamark. A band that Gamark championed back in 1982 that's still around is The Alarm, powered by the rock and roll dreams of leader Mike Peters. The Alarm came blazing out of Wales and first played the United States opening for U2. A decade of hit singles in the UK followed before the original band went their separate ways. But Peters has not stopped, even after he was struck with leukemia in the mid-90s. He credits music and his wife, Jules, who's now a member of the Alarm, with giving him the strength to survive. Peters has been in and out of remission a few times since, and Jules faced her own challenge of breast cancer in 2016. But instead of folding, they began a charity called Love, Hope, Strength to help cancer patients around the world. The Alarm is playing Tucson next Wednesday, which gave me a chance to discover that talking to Mike Peters is like finding an old friend I had never met.
Yeah, it was amazing. The first night I ever got to Dallas, I went on the rock and roll alternative with George Kimark, and uh, I was supposed to go on air after Bono had done his interview, and this is the War Tour era U2, and um, Bono was late, so George had me in on the microphone early, and he pulled out our single that we'd made as a young band in Wales called 17 before he'd even become the alarm, and he played that. So it was a bit of an eye-opener you know, to travel all that way. In those pre-internet days, you know, to get a message out, you had a record that someone had found it and taken the time to get it and play it. It was just, uh, it was amazing. And there was a couple of guys outside waiting for us when we got there as well that, that uh, brought us... Um, a sort of skeleton of a steer that, that we carried around with us. <laughs> a a, a skeleton of a steer. Oh, like a steer head, like a like a cow skull. Cattle head, yeah, yeah, yeah that's it. And, and you could see it in the the stand video, one of the amplifiers, and uh, we named him Dallas. And <laughs> we carried it around everywhere. It was like a lucky charm for us. So uh, yeah, we, we we got a lot to be thankful for George Gimmark. He really uh, blew it out of the park for us when we got to America and uh, helped spread the word and one of the first sort of serious fans we had in the USA. This is a full circle moment for me, Mike. It really is to be able to talk to you now because I wouldn't have gotten into radio if it wasn't for George Gamark's influence on me. And the excitement that I felt from listening to Rock and Roll Alternative has fueled everything that I've done in radio since then. that's good. We're all of that generation. For us in the UK, it was hearing people like John Peel and and these were people who, who played and, and hosted radio shows with a stack of records and nobody knew what was coming next. Not even the DJ, he was playing a record and then he'd think about the next one while that was be, being played and there was an energy and excitement about that. And DJs like George Gimark and John Peel, they would let you know about the record and how you could get it and what label it was on and who played on it. And, and I think that's really important stuff and that's, that's disappeared, that traditional kind of radio play that was so engaging. And, and with the inspiration, not just for future DJs, but future bands as well. For those of us in the States who may not really understand the way that Great Britain works, how did growing up in Wales influence you? How do you think it made you different from, say, if you had grown up in Birmingham or uh, London? Wales is the original culture and inhabitants of the British islands are, are, are Welsh. The, the original British people, ours is a nation that was forced over the border to live on the perimeters as the bigger, um, more developed cultures invaded and took over the British Isles. The Normans and the Romans were the ones that stuck it out there and, uh, and survived. And, and um, you know, the Welsh language is the oldest language. The oldest piece of literature in the world is the Godolphin, and that's in the Welsh language. And, uh, and, and so growing up in that culture, was, um, it was conflicting as a young boy because I didn't speak the language. I was denied that language at school through the political system we had in place. Hmm. The language was trying to be eradicated for, for centuries. And uh, it's only really in my generation's time that it's really regained a, a foothold. And I grew up in a Wales where there was no Welsh language on the road signs now. Everywhere is bilingual. The language flourishes. My, my children go to Welsh language school. But as an English speaker, it, it was conflicting not being able to um, understand the, your mother tongue. It, it was by coming to America, I think, in a way, 
meeting people like George Gimmock on the radio, people like yourselves, you say, what's Wales like? And then you'd actually describe it and think, wow, I actually like where I come from. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 you know, it's like what Mahatma Gandhi said, come home, you have to go away. Uh, and by traveling to America, it made me realize how much effect Wales had on me as an individual. And, and uh, you know, we, we, are, we are a race that have been, you know, pushed with our backs up against the wall, if you like. And they say often that the Irish are, are, the, are the Welsh that could swim. <laughs> and uh, we've come from that sort of culture that's been pushed to to the edges and, and has had to make a stand for who who we are as a people. And that's where basically what the alarm have been doing all our lives is just encouraging people to stand up for themselves, you know, be independent, make try and make put yourself in a position where you have choices in life, where you can make headway. And however you choose to, to implement that is, is down to the individual. But that's that's really what we've done. And when you you know you think about it, it's it's the story of Wales. It's the story of the alarm. Well, you also gave me an excellent segue to talk about one of my favorite songs, which was based on the Stephen King book. Was it really? Was the stand based on that book? It was um, inspired by the book in a way. Uh, and, and the book was about four people making a stand for the world and for humanity and and, and I think there was a parallel in that for not just the alarm, but for any band. It's one of those songs that, that people take into their lives and, and they make of it what they will. And there's, there's character references to the Stephen King book, like The Walking Dude and Trash Can and all that kind of thing. So, yeah, there's a lot of parallels there. And, and it wouldn't have been written if I hadn't read the book, that's for sure. We tried to sort of send it to Stephen King himself, but he, I think he was a bit annoyed that we'd sort of uh, stolen a couple of... <laughs> His characters, maybe he fancied writing the song, we beat him to it, I don't know. Can you give us an update on you and Jules right now and your, your status, your health status? We're both in a good space. You know, Jules has uh, endured incredible uh, experiences over the last two years, as we all have with her as a family and as a care network. And and the same for me, you know, that Jules has been my carer for most of my adult life. You know, I was, I was first diagnosed with uh, the cancer situation in, in 1995, and we've been through it all together ever since. And, and we're, we're both the beneficiaries of of the advances in the way cancer is the care and medicines and treatments are administered. And um, it's only in the last year or so that I've been really free enough to, to, to leave hospital for longer than three weeks. I, I used to have treatment in hospital and then there was breakthroughs in the, the new drugs that came along and, and now they've untethered me from hospital treatment. I can come to America and tour for six months now. And, and not have to go back into hospital. You know, as long as I get my every checks every few months, uh, I, I'm I'm back out on the road, living a healthy life. So's Jules. It's just getting through to that next stage where she's they've been rebuilding her body shape. And so 
us to get on the stage, it's a real celebration of life, and we're we're so grateful for everyone that's that's helped us get back onto our feet and uh, and up and running, and uh, you know, and, and we feel proud. In response to these these experiences you've had, Mike, and dealing with cancer, you and Jules, I know that you have a charitable organization, and uh, tell us about that and and how that will be seen here in Tucson when you play. In 2007, we created a charity called the Love Hope Strength Foundation, and its its mission was to regulate the way cancer care is administered throughout the world and appreciate in, in the USA and Britain, although we have differing healthcare systems, there's um, other parts of the world that don't have access to anywhere near what we have in our corners of the globe. And and uh, we decided to try and fill, fill that void, in, even if it's in a tiniest sort of way. And um, we hosted concerts on Mount Everest and Kilimanjaro um, if we raised $250,000 by climbing Everest, it's a drop in the ocean here. But in Nepal, it's a vast sum of money and it helped build the cancer center, the same in Africa. And we also do bone marrow drives at concerts. We've signed over 170,000 people to the bone marrow donor registry. And we've located over 3,700 individual matches for people who need transplants to live. Give me love, give me hope, give me strength. That's where it comes from. LoveHopeStrength.org. At the height of the alarm's success, do you think that you guys spent more money on hair care products or sticks and strings? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, definitely on the hair products, I would say. (laughs) And we are responsible for the whole in the ozone layer, so blame us. (laughs) Get all the Aquanet. It's a dangerous weapon. The 2017 documentary called The Man in the Camo Jacket tells the story of Mike and Jules Peters. The Alarm will play at 191 Tool in downtown Tucson on Wednesday, August 22nd. Trying to describe the independent films of Richard R.G. Miller doesn't do them justice. They need to be seen. From action to westerns to science fiction, he's been single-handedly writing and producing, directing and acting in backyard epics from his home in Wichita, Kansas, for more than three decades. Although each project can take months of work to complete, Miller modestly admits that if a film gets more than 10 views on YouTube, he considers it a success. That statement provided the title for the 2015 documentary Double Digits, the story of a neighborhood movie star. I talked with the maker of that film, Justin Johnson, when he presented the film in Tucson in 2015, and we discussed the cinematic magic of R.G. Miller. Well, he calls them internet art films, and I think that's just the perfect term for what he makes. He has these big, fantastical, like $100 million ideas that really should be impossible to do. And through this strange process that he puts his films through, he is able to get the vision across to the viewer in a way that's just absolutely hypnotic. And you just have to see it. And as you described, there is a lot of video art that goes on to creating the sets and the backgrounds and the props. But uh, what about the acting in these films? Well, there's really only one actor, and that's RG himself. Sometimes there's cameos, but really it's just the vision of one guy. So if it's not him, it's going to be one of his dolls or action figures. He's got all these crazy toys that he spray painted, and he uses them as as his actors in these scenes. So that's what you're going to see. You're going to see RG sometimes talking to himself in split screen, and then these little toys. 
but when you see it, you just you never forget it because it's captivating. It's distinctly cinematic. It is very for for the way he pulls these things off. Like it is very his mind is a director's mind for sure. I was wondering, looking at some shots, like one that comes to mind where uh, a car pulls out of a junkyard at high speed and turns a corner, and it's done with a what, what I guess I would call a car marionette. It's yeah. a car suspended from strings on a tiny hand-built stage replicating a junkyard. And you have to think to yourself, wouldn't it have been easier to drive a real car around a real corner and film it? RG's sort of a hermit. He's like a hermit artist. And so for him to leave the confines of his tiny quote-unquote studio apartment or his side yard would take beyond the effort that he usually puts into location scouting. He's been making movies with this particular style for like 35 years. So he's very comfortable building these tiny worlds, more so comfortable than actually going out into the world and doing it. Also, he doesn't have a driver's license, so that may present an issue for the for the car scene. So it's ironic that for him, it's actually easier to build a, a matchbox world and inhabit it with complicated special effects than it is to interact with the real world. Absolutely. And, and, and I think it just gives him more control over his vision. Every director, now with the advent of CG, directors are able to exercise a really incredible amount of control. It's the same for RG. Like, he loves the control of the world. And for him, I think that's what really drives him to do films as he does them. In your movie, you do a lot of interviews with people who know him, friends and family, and uh, there's a lot of smiles in the movie. Most people, when you ask them about RG's movies, their faces light up in a way that I think would make Disney or Hitchcock or Steven Spielberg happy if they were to get the same reaction. He seems like a really happy guy. He's very upbeat. Did you ever see that side of his personality tested in the time that you were working with him? Absolutely. And he gets frustrated throughout the process of making these things because it being a one-man band sort of project, there are plenty of things that can go wrong. For example, one scene in the film takes place of him filming underneath a bridge, this very bleak bridge, and there are literally 50-mile-an-hour wind gusts threatening to like blast his tripod over. And there's no one manning that camera. That tripod is sitting there by itself as he wanders off 50 feet into a ditch in his superhero costume. That's an example of going out into the world and shooting where it presents a lot of difficulties. So he certainly gets frustrated. But one thing that I really learned from him is that he treats that frustration as sort of a sign from the gods that he's on the right track. That's one of my favorite quotes in the film, and that's one thing that really inspired me to continue working on it. It's that kind of attitude that keeps him young and keeps that childlike spirit for him as a creator. Justin Johnson's documentary, Double Digits, The Story of a Neighborhood Movie Star, is available on demand through iTunes, Amazon, and Vudu. You can watch the trailer and find a link to R.G. Miller's catalog of films at azpm.org. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. You can find our podcasts on iTunes and through the phone app NPR One. This show originates from the AZPM Radio Studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.